Welcome to this Touch podcast activity, which has been recorded for Touch Neurology. This podcast brings you insights from Professor Martin Weber, a leading multiple sclerosis specialist, on the key considerations for a personalised treatment strategy for patients with relapsing forms of MS. He also explores the key role that B-cells play in the pathogenesis and progression of MS, including the therapeutic potential of B-cell-targeted agents. This activity is funded by an independent medical education grant from Sanofi. This activity is jointly provided by USF Health and Touch IME. In our first interview, with the optimal use of disease-modifying therapies for the management of relapsing forms of MS in mind, Professor Martin Weber discusses key considerations for achieving an appropriately personalised treatment strategy. Hello everyone, my name is Martin Weber. I'm a professor of translational neuroinflammation at the Institute of Neuropathology and the deputy director of the Department of Neurology. How can clinicians maintain treatment goals throughout a patient's lifetime? When we really think about this question, uh, it's not so much about what immediate uh, treatment do I choose, but what is the sequence of uh, treatments and treatments options that we use uh, throughout the life of a patient. So basically, the idea is to set long-term treatment goals. The question, of course, is how and when uh, um, each individual DMT is used, when to switch, and of course, including also patient-specific factors such as preference and, and, uh, and choice. And then, of course, to integrate these treatment goals in family planning or in older patients, so in other um, circumstances of their life. So what are the, the key considerations for the personalized treatment of a mass? Well, first of all, of course, in the events that a patient um, is, uh, is faced with, uh, the first is, of course, a diagnosis, and the immediate question thereafter is, what's my prognosis? And we all know that there are um, a couple of parameters determining what the prognosis will be or looks like. These are biomarkers, clinical features, but also um, disease subtype, possibly factors of the environment, such as the vitamin D status, for example, MRI measures. So multiple things that needs to be integrated into the understanding and also uh, the projection of the prognosis. And then, of course, probably the most important um, uh, treatment, uh, treatment situation uh, then for personalized uh, treatment is uh, what are the comorbidities? What is what is this? Let's say the family situation um, of uh, the patient, uh, pregnancy planning, or having children. Um, of course, very important patient preference. Um, what are the expectations? And also extremely important, what is the risk tolerance? So one patient is worried about a very effective treatment. The other patient uh, is exactly uh, favoring that one for this efficacy. And then, of course, and this is also a very tricky um, situation um, to assess very early or as early as possible in the uh, treatment sequence when to switch therapy. Of course, um, 
we look at different um, uh, uh, situations or different phases uh, in the disease and um, the different, let's say, options, um, for example, uh, primary treatment goals and day-to-day uh, -day treatment goals, um, those change also uh, throughout the disease, um, meaning that when we look at the, um, the primary treatment goal, for example, in most patients, of course, is to slow disease progression. Ultimately, disease progression um, is what it's all about. Um, and managing symptoms naturally is not as important in the beginning, whereas later on, um, when we look at the day-to-day -day situation, of course, slowing disease progression is still central. But managing symptoms, for example, becomes more important. So this all needs to be integrated also in the individual uh, situation throughout the disease. What are the key treatment considerations for patients with early disease? Of course, we all want to have the option to treat very early in the disease, um, particularly as progression um, in our understanding uh, today occurs very early in the disease, although it of course surfaces um, on the clinical surface, so to say, um, later on. So is there an option early in the disease to slow disease progression? And also, of course, then to prevent uh, a clinical transition towards secondary progression uh, in MS. Um, of course, it's a shared decision, a shared decision between uh, the uh, healthcare provider and the patient. Um, very important is to set the uh, the goals of the uh, treatment efficacy together. So, what's the expected goal? Um, and uh, of course, then again. Um, uh, it is important to keep these considerations um, in a shared position throughout the uh, course of the disease in different situations. What are now the clinical targets for patients with MS? Well, we still think that, of course, the ultimate target would be NIDAM. The uh, goal here is no evidence of disease activity. It's a little bit a, let's say, well-used term, which I believe is a little bit um, overstating um, that we really silence all aspects of MS. I'm not sure or I'm not so sure anymore whether that's really possible. But what is meant is that the patient is not undergoing uh, clinical relapses, of course, that there's no MRI dynamic, so no gadolinum-enhancing lesion, but also uh, no active T2 lesion. And ultimately, of course, that there is also no confirmed disability progression. To date, these treatment goals can be best achieved by starting early um, uh, with treatment uh, in, in a patient with relapsing remitting MS. And uh, we know that if we treat early, then we can probably uh, at least uh, down play the ultimate uh, accumulating disability uh, in a certain extent. So basically, um, the early treatment determines what's, uh, what's happening later on. This is still the case since we are only able to treat the highly inflammatory part of multiple sclerosis. So I think the early window of opportunity, which is still valid, that term is still valid, also refers to the fact that we don't have so efficient late-stage treatments, so for example, treatments uh, that really reach into the central nervous system where probably most part of progression 
happens and occurs. So still, as uh, as it is, uh, as of now, we believe an early window of opportunity is, is best probably to achieve the treatment goal of NIDA. How can clinicians identify patients most at risk of disease progression? This is something that also refers a lot to experience. So um, I, I think we need to, we all need to uh, see a lot of patients to get a feel for that. But there are, of course, also factors, um, key factors that needs to be uh, taken into consideration to assess exactly that point. And there are a couple of biomarkers um, uh, that, of course, can, on the one hand, uh, uh, project a little bit the, the disease course. Um, but it's, of course, also important that the efficacy of available DNTs match more or less this, uh, this, um, uh, these, uh, this activity or, or the, the disease activity, which we think um, is appropriate for the individual patient. So what are the factors associated with poor outcomes in a mass? A lot of these factors, uh, unfortunately, are best described later on in disease. So basically what we, of course, all look for is an early biomarker uh, which can which can tell us that this patient needs to be treated uh, differently and possibly also more aggressively. What we still think it, it which which is associated with a poor outcome in MS is an older age of uh, at, at onset than also uh, male gender. Um, of course, comorbidities um, both cardiovascular and psychiatric and smoking. Um, so one factor at least that we can change um, in our lifestyle. Then, of course, the disease-related clinical features. So how does MS occur in the individual patient? Number of relapses, of course, more relapses, more uh, disability, poor recovery from relapses, or including the first relapse. So even, even after the first relapse, you can project, at least in part, a little bit what the, the, the next relapse and the particularly recovery from the next uh, relapse will look like. And then, of course, the occurrence of symptoms. So uh, cerebellar uh, cognitive symptoms at onset, um, clinical presentation, um, that, of course, all uh, basically influence um, what the um, outcome um, is ultimately. And progression onset, I think that's relatively clear progression and sometimes uh, poor recovery is really hard to distinguish, at least in the beginning of uh, the disease. But of course, they both factor in uh, when it comes to a disability uh, um, accumulation. Then MRI features a lot of lesions and lesion dynamic over time is, of course, uh, uh, associated with a poor prognosis, infratentral lesions at baseline spinal cord, both for the reasons that they are highly, uh, uh, very uh, highly clinically relevant, of course. Um, and then also um, uh, the, let's say, localization within, for example, the cortex of uh, the lesions uh, is important. And, well, probably also measures in the laboratory. I think that would be particularly helpful as we can, of course, recover these from the very beginning. Um, and uh, the, the presence of uh, OCBs, all the global bands, um, are associated with poor outcome. What is the evidence for early use of high-efficacy DMTs to improve short- and long-term outcomes? Well, there is, uh, let's say, not too dense information on uh, direct comparisons of therapies, but we get an idea with few clinical trials with comparator uh, therapy. 
Um, I think what's helpful is long-term open-label extension studies um, where we can really see the, the, the uh, real-world evidence that these uh, medications uh, uh, change the, the outcome of the disease. Um, so, so these are, I think, the most helpful information um, to assess or to compare directly um, what we think is a high uh, or medium efficacy DMT for relapsing in mass. And then, of course, uh, the question uh, is always, um, um, where is the cutoff between um, high efficacy and medium efficacy? Um, a lot of the newer monoclonal antibodies should be considered clearly as high uh, efficacy DMTs. What's a little bit problematic is that this is assessed basically on the MRI efficacy and not so much on the ultimate outcome, which probably we'll know in a couple of years. Thank you for those valuable insights, Professor Weber. Now let's move on to our next topic. What is the role of B-cells in MS pathogenesis and progression? How do B-cells in the central nervous system and periphery play a role in progression, independent of relapse activity and disease relapses? I think that's a key question to understand whether B-cells truly contribute to progression independent of uh, the individual relapse. So, um, of course, we need to think of pro-inflammatory pro cytokines uh, provided by B cells. Uh, we also need to take into consideration the uh, great ability of memory B cells uh, to probably act as antigen-presenting cells, but also as, as activators for other immune cells. Regulatory B cells, on the other hand, um, that could downplay inflammation going on in the central nervous system. And then, of course, the, the um, possibility that B cells play a differing role in the CNS uh, versus the periphery. And, of course, that uh, impacts uh, where and how to target um, uh, uh, B cells with, for example, anti-CD20s, but also other therapies. So... When we look at the the role of, of B cells um, in the uh, pathophysiology uh, of multiple sclerosis, there is by now multiple roles uh, that needs to be taken into consideration. One is, and I think that's probably already the most important one, the interaction with other immune cells, so providers of cytokines, as just mentioned, both pro-inflammatory, such as IL-6, for example, but also anti-inflammatory, such as IL-10. Um, the ability of B cells, particularly when they recognize via their BCR the antigen to be presented to act as antigen-presenting cells for T cells, so to generate T effector cells, then, of course, there is regulatory B cells, possibly also a regulatory B cell dysfunction or disbalance in multiple sclerosis. We know probably best or for the longest time that B cells uh, differentiate into plasma cells providing um, uh, oligoclonal IgG, still important uh, for the diagnosis of multiple sclerosis, and then particularly important for the part on progression um, that B cells uh, uh, interplay with CNS resident cells such as mitochondria and astrocytes, again, probably most importantly in a pro-inflammatory manner, but possibly also in a regulatory manner, uh, particularly providing IL-10. What is the evidence for current CD20 targeting treatments in the management of relapsing remitting MS? I think there's 
pretty strong evidence for uh, this particular mode of action. We have now decades of data uh, on rituximab, uh, opalizumab, ofatumab, and uh, lastly now on ublituximab co 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 collectively. So if we combine these data um, um, as uh, anti-CD20 drugs, then we have a very well experienced, uh, let's say, uh, approach uh, to target uh, B cells. And then the, the other question is, and that, that of course refers to the question of CD20, um, what is the, uh, how do they differ, uh, uh, these drugs, from other DMTs? Well, first of all, it's, uh, it's important um, that, of course, um, we are targeting with these drugs CD20 carrying B cells. And um, one question is, and that, that question could be answered um, throughout the last years, that this includes also a small fraction of T cells, um, the T cells that are CD20, and uh, very strikingly and, and uh, interestingly, uh, these T cells uh, they get CD20 from a B cell um, during activation, so during um, APC T cell interaction, and that means that CD20 and anti-CD20 depletes a fraction of recently B cell activated T cells, and that of course. Um, could be extremely important for the efficacy of, of these treatments, both in the periphery, but also um, in the central nervous system. And then the second point, of course, is that I just referred to these drugs as the class of anti-CD20 um, antibodies. That is true, but of course, there's also differences between rituximab, oculizumab, ofatumab, and ubilituximab, particularly when it comes to the uh, part or the, let's say, um, percentage um, of the uh, of the, the antibody um, being human, which you know, underwent a little bit of an evolution, so to say. When we um, then look at the key efficacy data, I think it's pretty clear that um, all of these four different drugs are extremely efficient, efficient when it comes to um, uh, silencing MRI activity and also preventing um, uh, clinical relapses. I mean, there's almost uh, a virtual absence of clinical relapses with these drugs. But of course, the, the open question, uh, or the, let's say, less, uh, um, or we have less information on the question is whether they truly also uh, are efficient within the central nervous system and whether they really can slow down progression independent of, uh, of, uh, of relapses. Um, and to be honest, I think that that question is still um, is still open and uh, is not so easy to answer. Also, from a trial perspective, so how to how to design these trials and so on. Then, of course, the ultimate question always in medicine is what's the what's the disadvantage? So, uh, what are the adverse events? And um, in my mind, relatively surprisingly, um, the adverse events are are not severe. Um, surprising, since in the beginning I thought that B cells, CD20 positive B cells. Um, are are needed, and and I think the recent pandemic showed us that that of course we need um, an effective immune system and and a response. But due to the fact that the plasma cells are not depleted, we can probably at least for for the some time, some years, we can easily or relatively easily li live without B cells. Um, and most of the uh, the side effects uh, are uh, both on the infectious side, but also on um, on other. Uh, um, parameters are very uh, 
relatively light when it comes to the efficacy of this of these uh, drugs. What are the main safety considerations with currently available anti-CD20 therapies? Well, I think what needs to be um, discussed here is, of course, the um, long-term safety considerations. So what I just said about um, the plasma cells not being depleted uh, also needs to be, or needs to be some information added here, that of course plasma cells cannot uh, um, um, uh, generate plasma cells, so they are generated from B-cell precursors. And that means that ultimately, of course, the, the plasma cell pool will be also depleted or at least reduced in numbers. And so we need to really uh, long-term uh, assess the safety of this approach, including um, the, the, the checking or constant checking on the Ig levels, which at least in some circumstances seem to lower with, anti, with continuous anti-CD20 uh, treatment. And then, of course... The, the question here is always um, what, what other parts of the immune system are missing um, when it comes to uh, adverse events and um, what needs to be taken in consideration. Also, of course, I think in long-term um, observations are um, particularly, as I already said, the, the drop in immunoglobulins, infections, and neoplasms, because I think also a very low-frequent, uh, by, by itself already, uh, low-frequency neoplasm can be easily overlooked. And so, of course, we need to be particularly careful when it comes to changing parts of the immune system that the, the fight against cancer cells is not a pair. What are the key considerations for selecting patients for B-cell-directed therapies and how may biomarkers be used to drive decisions? It's a relatively difficult question, I find, for myself because there's not such a thing as a B-cell MS marker. But I think, of course, when we look at what these drugs can do, um, a very MRI-active patient, for example, of course, is already somehow um, um, a good patient for anti-CD20. Then, of course, we possibly can look at uh, CSF uh, biomarkers. Um, and, and what we said earlier, I think, is extremely important. What's the, the risk or what risk is the patient willing to, um, um, to undergo um, I think that's important uh, uh, points for the uh, question who should be treated with anti-CD20. Thank you for those interesting insights, Professor Weber. Now let's consider the clinical evidence for available and emerging B-cell-targeted therapeutic agents. What B-cell-directed therapies are in development and how do they work? Here, I think we have um, basically... To, uh, to look, of course, at, at anti-CD20, but more now in comparison to the other available uh, B-cell-directed therapies, such as PTK inhibitors. And um, PTK inhibitors, it's Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitors, um, are, of course, or need to be differentiated from anti-CD20s, and they work very, very differently, uh, although they both target B-cells. So very exciting that we now have with these PTK inhibitors the novel approach towards uh, targeting B-cells um, that is not depleting B-cells. So where could BTK be important? Well, BTK is the enzyme that is centrally involved when a B-cell is activated via its BCR. So it's the BCR on the surface and right end of the surface is Bruton's tyrosine kinase, in short, uh, BTK. And then, of course, we have 
multiple sites throughout the pathogenesis of multiple sclerosis where this particular B-cell activation could be important. And I think uh, it, it uh, well, it naturally already in the periphery limits a B-cell activation, of course, downstream of the BCR. And that also includes, or, or that thinking includes, that a B-cell is not stimulated in an antigen-specific manner, which also means that antigen-specific B-cells cannot proliferate and, and, and differentiate into plasma cells providing antibodies. So you're starting B-cell activation very early in the cascade um, of, of B-cell properties contributing to, to disease. And then the other uh, opposing, so to say, uh, um, question or possible mode of action is um, BTK activation is most likely uh, needed when B-cells uh, form into uh, in the CNS in, in secondary B-cell follicles. And these B-cells most likely also interact, as we uh, alerted earlier, with uh, CNS resident cells such as microglia and astrocytes. And if you inhibit, or if we would possibly inhibit uh, B-cell activation via BTK inhibition um, in B-cells within the central nervous system, then basically this uh, constant um, activation of microglia and possibly also uh, the the uh, differentiation to plasma cells providing oligoclone bands could be inhibited. So there's great hope that these uh, these drugs, which are small molecules, also make it into the central nervous system. And they, of course, then B-cells um, could be most likely better be targeted than, than with anti-CD20. Um, and, and if B-cell activation could be reviewed, could be reduced, this, uh, these drugs could really make a difference when it comes to uh, slowing down disease progression independent of relapses. So the, I guess, ultimate treatment question right, uh, right now um, uh, in, in, the, in the field of MS therapies. What do the clinical data say about the use of emerging B-cell targeting agents? So these are the uh, three agents um, being in, develop in development where we already have efficacy data, most of it uh, phase two, phase two B um, data. And um, it's very interesting because these trials, they, they differ um, in parts, particularly when it comes to the secondary um, outcomes. And so we, we obtain from in each individual trial, we obtain um, other parts of, of information um, and of course, the most important, as I already said, the most important question is whether uh, these drugs um, act in the central nervous system and related to that question, uh, whether they can slow down uh, progression by its central, act, uh, by its central uh, um, activity. That would be, of course, uh, great. Can you describe the safety data for emerging B-cell-directed therapies? We have an idea by now that... Um, all of these drugs or this this new, let's say, uh, kind of drug um, in clinical trials generate uh, some side effects. Most of them are uh, manageable. We see a couple of serious adverse events uh, reported in clinical trials. And most of them, um, interestingly, and that, of course, uh, differs uh, now from, from the uh, anti-CD20s, uh, most of it, uh, at least with the uh, data that we have, uh, refer also to liver um, abnormalities, so liver enzyme elevations. So again, of course, these small drugs um, um, are more likely to also interact with uh, metabolic um, 
parameters in the uh, in the body. And besides those, and that's of course always the the fear when it comes to treating uh, MS. It's of course uh, the um, infectious um, stuff that we usually see. So uh, nasopharyngitis, uh, not very severe uh, um, um, signals, but of course signals that we need to uh, carefully uh, watch throughout the next years. What patient populations were included in the clinical trials of emerging B-cell-directed therapies and how might this impact patient selection? I think that's, of course, always a very important information to see where the limitations of the information also is um, and how might this impact patient selection. Well, I think it's a relatively, let's say, uh, important question, but very early, of course, in development. Uh, not so easy to uh, to assess and answer at this point, I would say. Um, well, we, we can, of course, from different trials, uh, see, for example, uh, phenoprotonib being trialed in, in progressive uh, MS that we, of course, get an idea which niche these drugs later on could be uh, could be taking. Or what the uh, what the respective uh, companies, let's say, uh, um, idea is where to put them. But I think that's a relatively uh, it's relatively early, as I already said, um, to really uh, provide an answer to that based on phase two data. That's not so uh, easy. How can novel B cell directed therapies be implemented into patients' treatment plans? That is not so easy to generate, or this information is not so easy to generate um, uh, from the individual clinical trials, because of course you will always see a relative efficacy in terms of controlling um, parameters of need, as well, particularly MRI activity, and it could be that we need to be a little bit more um, um, intelligent or more smart uh, for this kind of drugs than, than we usually do in, in, in these trials. So, for example, um, it could be a very nice approach. BTK inhibition could be a very nice approach uh, to be implemented after um, anti-CD20 B-cell therapy. So, uh, we have emerging data from our lab that, that the B-cells regrow in a non-pathogenic uh, manner when the BTK inhibition is placed as a, as a maintenance therapy. So it could be that um, that there is a certain sequence of B-cell-directed therapies uh, which then benefit best or provides the best benefit for the patient, both in terms of eradicating pathogenic B-cells at the very beginning and then regrowing not-so-pathogenic, hopefully regulatory B-cell properties when we implement BTK inhibition as a maintenance therapy. And that's it, exactly the, the, the let's say, the, the problem that we have, that uh, at least when we look at uh, the different drugs that are implemented um, throughout uh, uh, the disease course, so to say, so CIS, relapsing uh, MS, and then SPMS, um, we are often comparing uh, things head-to-head -head which need to be thought in sequence. So what I think is is or should be uh, thought of uh, with these drugs for the very beginning is not so much so where do I put them immediately so which patient should be treated with this kind of drugs but more to place them into a sequence and I think um, again as I already said I think these are extremely uh, attractive maintenance uh, therapies since they control B cell activation without uh, the necessity to deplete B cells which I think is the ultimate uh, a gain from this kind of drugs.
Thank you, Professor Weber, for sharing your expert insights on optimising the management of patients with relapsing forms of MS. And thank you to our audience for listening to this Touch podcast. You can access more content on MS at www.touchneurology.com.